Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Great to be with you all. Thanks, Randall and worship team. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us by sending your Son, um, Lord Jesus, that you would humble yourself and come not only as a man, but as a servant, and not only as a servant, but ready to die uh, for our sake on that cross. And so as we look today at, at humility, I pray that uh, you, by your, the power of your Spirit, uh, would teach us the deep truths of what it looks like to, to walk in the ways of humility as you walked. Um, to be people of, of humility and great love. And I pray that you would bind us together by your spirit, that we would fellowship together in your spirit, that we would love one another as brothers and sisters. And these are supernatural, spiritual things that we, we can't always accomplish, but you can. And so we ask today that you'd bind us together in love. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you were here last week, you'll know that we talked about the Apostle Paul's incredible toughness and his courage in the face of danger. And we talked about how it was love that kind of compelled him to, to keep going to places where he knew he was going to face you know, persecution and beating and imprisonment because he said, you know, if God demonstrated such grace to me, the, the chief of sinners, you know, then he's just going to keep on going to those people who hate him and despise him because he goes, well, maybe the, the grace that I experienced, I want them to experience as well. And so today, I want to start by opening, and, and we looked yesterday at the, you know, last week at the physical suffering of the Apostle Paul a little bit. I want to just tag on to that some of the emotional suffering that Paul experienced. I mentioned in, second, in uh, one of his letters to the Corinthian church, he says, you remember, dear brothers and sisters, that when I first came to you, I was weak and fearful and trembling. And he also writes this in 2 Corinthians. So he lists all the physical things that he suffered, and then he says this. Besides all this, that's being like the shipwrecks and the beatings and the imprisonment, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? So Paul is saying that what he, he's feeling the emotional connection to the people that he has led into the family of faith. And Paul feels the responsibility for the spiritual welfare of the churches he planted. So much so that when he f hears of individuals who are weak in their faith, he, he feels that weakness. When he, fe when he hears about people who are led astray into some heresy or into some sin, he feels anger, not at the person necessarily, but at, at what has transpired. So Paul is actually a really deeply emotional man. He feels the emotional weight of caring for the spiritual health of these congregations. And to add to this the, the emotional burden, there's also the emotional strain that Paul is constantly being misunderstood. His fellow Jewish people whom he loves dearly, let's get this out of the way before we go any further, Paul loves his Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul loves his Jewish brothers and sisters. And yet it's his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who are almost always the ones chasing him out of cities and fighting him so vigorously. And even within his own church uh, body context, it seems that Paul's ministry message is not always understood. And so what we're going to see today is, as we look at Paul's um, example of humility is that in addition to having to care for all the churches he planted, having this emotional connection to these churches, we also see that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles 
is constantly being criticized and critiqued and slandered by some believers in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul's ministry is so misunderstood that outright lies about what he teaches are circulating amongst believers in Jerusalem. And I can't think of anything worse than having your entire ministry be misunderstood by the people you're supposed to be in fellowship with. Right? Can you imagine if, if every, you know, you deeply love your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and you come into Jerusalem and you realize, oh, they don't understand a thing of what I do. In fact, they're believing lies about me. And, and so th- this is what Paul faces when he finally arrives back in Jerusalem after a 10-year mission to the Gentiles. So Paul is scheduled to have a really big meeting with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church, right? The leaders of the church. And Jerusalem at this point, right, is kind of the hub of the church. These are the leaders of the church. And he's going to give them a detailed account of what has happened. So we're going to pick up in Acts 21, verse 18. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I have the wrong translation. I'm using the New Living Translation, and this is uh, Christian Standard, so I can't read mine. (laughs) I forgot to change my Bible out. Okay, so Acts 21, verse 18. Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul, just a just pause here. We'll, we'll go further, but just a pause here. Paul makes sure to point out that everything that happened happened because God accomplished it through him. And if there's any area where pride creeps into churches or into pastors, it's when they begin to see the results of their efforts and they start to think it's because they're really smart or they're really trendy or they're really groundbreaking or whatever it is, right? You see that all the time. You see someone who's worked really hard and then that ego starts to build. They go, wow, look at what I've accomplished. Look how smart I am. I've really got a handle on this. And then they get invited to speak at leadership conferences and they go, yep, that's right, I'm a good leader. And there's, there's nothing wrong with those things necessarily. We can see where the pride comes in, where Paul, he, he's a hardworking man, right? And, and he goes wherever it is that he needs to go. Yet he always says, hey, it's not me. It's what God has accomplished through me. Because the truth is, Jesus builds his church. A church legitimately grows when God moves. And churches can grow based on human ability and charisma and effort. But I don't really think that's the type of growth that has any lasting power or effect. And so I'm much more comfortable when a church can't explain the growth that they see other than to say we stepped out in faith and God moved, right? Because sometimes you can kind of pinpoint why a church grew, right? They built a brand new building, they've got the coolest lights, they've got the best worship team, the pastor's really charismatic and they grow. And they get all the people from other churches and they go, look at us, we're awesome. And they go, well, how many, how many new believers have you baptized? Anyways, that's an aside. But this theme of humility is going to run right through the text today, right? Paul's really humble. He says, hey, everything that happened is because God was working through me. But as we come into the next section of this passage, we're going to get a sense as to the kind of misunderstanding that Paul faced from his own people. We're going to see then how Paul deals with it. He deals with this misunderstanding, with courageous humility. So Paul gives his account of what God has done. And after hearing this, it says, they praised God and then they said, You know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed. So I'll pause here. Why are they telling Paul this? It's almost like they think Paul has forgotten that that the Jews are important. There's already a misunderstanding here. Paul loves the Jewish people. When Paul goes to the Roman cities, he always tries to find a Jewish synagogue first. He tries to preach the gospel to the Jewish people first. And here they're saying this thing, this weird thing. You know, Paul, many thousands of Jews have believed too. And they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. 
But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the laws of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. If I'm Paul at this moment, I'm, I'm going to be having some pretty serious concerns about how my ministry is being supported and understood. The leadership in Jerusalem, I mean, there's a couple of problems here. Number one, it seems like they're sort of saying something without saying it outright. Like, hey, Paul, lots of Jews believe in Jesus too. It's like, yeah, that's great, guys. And the other thing that's happening is there's these rumors going around about Paul, and I'm wondering, okay, you guys are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Why aren't you stopping the rumors? So there's rumors going around about Paul. Why aren't you stopping them? And so if I'm Paul at this moment, I'm going, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't sounding good. And the first thing that we want to be clear on is that everything that Paul did and taught was 100% accepted by the leadership of the Jerusalem church. It had been accepted and approved 10 years earlier at the Jerusalem council, first in private in the leadership and then in public through a letter. But it seems that the Jerusalem leadership has not been defending Paul at all because there's all these rumors going around about him. Now, Paul even explains the support that he had in Jerusalem to the Galatians, saying this. He said, I met privately with those considered to be the leaders of the church. I shared with them the message I've been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement, and they supported me, did not even demand my companion Titus be circumcised. And even that question only came up because of some so-called believers, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you, that's for the Gentiles, and the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. For anyone who idealizes the early church, here's a reality check on just how difficult it is to create a diverse community of faith united not by culture, but simply by faith. And what we're seeing here in this, what Paul's writing to the Galatians, is that Paul's message and ministry was affirmed by the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. They said, when you're with the Gentiles, we affirm everything you're saying. Even though some believers, and we find out in in Acts 15, that it's the believers from the sect of the Pharisees, they wanted to force Paul and his companions to follow Jewish regulations. But the leadership supported Paul, supported his message that Gentiles did not need to become practicing Jews in order to be saved. They could be saved by faith alone. And what we see is that within the Jerusalem church in the 10 years that Paul has been gone, adherence to Jewish ceremonial law and ritual law has remained intact, which is absolutely fine. The Jewish believers are absolutely free to follow the customs of the Jewish religion. The problem here is when the leaders of the Jerusalem church say that the believers in Jerusalem take the law of Moses very seriously. You can translate that to, they're zealous for the law. Remember how Paul was zealous for the law? They're zealous for the law. And the issue here is that they're overly zealous for something that's no longer a major part of the Christian faith, but a very minor thing. They take seriously the ritual and ceremonial aspects of the Jewish law, which is something the Gentile population of the church doesn't need to follow. As Paul puts it, he says, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets from long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So, It's fine for the Jewish believers to follow the rituals and the ceremonies of the Jewish law. The same grace that gives Gentiles freedom to abstain from Jewish law gives Jews freedom to observe the law. What the Jewish believers in Jerusalem seem unwilling to accept 
was that the old ways were not superior. The old covenant was just that. It was old, it wasn't superior. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he's made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. So the Jewish believers, the the real problem here is that they're putting way too much emphasis on an old covenant that is passing away. And it seems that their zealousness for the law begins to obscure the message of Jesus. The message of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, starts to get ignored because they say, we're zealous for the law. Well, okay, great, but it's not about the law, it's about what Jesus has done. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So there's some confusion coming in. And the zealousness for the Jewish law seems to consistently pull people back into a religion that wasn't teaching salvation by grace through faith alone, but was teaching basically, believe in Jesus and also be Jewish. Right? They're kind of putting two things together. And and churches today do that too. Believe in Jesus and follow whatever random rules we have in our body, whatever that could be. I mean, back, you know, some of the more independent, you know, fundamentalist types of churches would say, you know, they have all sorts of regulations, right? Like women have to wear skirts at a certain length and their hair has to be a certain length and men have to wear certain clothes. And it's like, Jesus is good, but also our rules are important. And, And what Paul's saying is, okay, Jesus is, it's Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. Is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. But this zealousness for the law, it constantly is creating division in the early church. And it was causing hypocrisy amongst the leadership. The, the best or maybe the worst example of this is Peter. And you probably remember this story, but I want to kind of do Paul's retelling of the story to see just how the zealousness for the law was creating division and hypocrisy within the church. So Paul tells of a public encounter he had with the Apostle Peter at the church in Antioch. Here's Paul's retelling of it. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? He goes on, he says this, you and I are Jews by birth, this is Galatians 2 if you want to write it down, and notice the quotation marks here, not sinners like the Gentiles, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So I just think it's a really interesting thing that the Jerusalem leaders go, hey, Brother Paul, you got to know the, the believers here in Jerusalem, they're, they're zealous for the law. They're, they really love the law. And it's like, okay, great, but are they elevating it to a place where it shouldn't be? Because it kind of seems like that's what's happening here. And you can see how insidious this, this zealousness for the ceremonial law and custom is. It made a pillar of the church, the Apostle Peter, create division in the Antioch church. And it made him into a hypocrite as he ate with Gentiles one day and abstained the next. Peter should have been firm with these Jewish believers who came and admonished them that the ritual laws and ceremonial laws do not give the Jews any superior standing in the body of Christ. 
This attitude towards the law of Moses creates arrogance, not humility. It creates a place for one group to feel superior. There's no way to bring humility into that type of division, right? It's kind of saying, well, we're the, we're the people who follow the law. You're the people who don't follow the law. We're the people who are clean. You're the people who are unclean. And anytime you have that kind of mindset happening in the church, I mean, obviously there's going to be division and tension. So the Jewish believers who are zealous for the law are creating this division in the body of Christ. They're still in the habit of separating themselves from the Gentiles. And, you know, obviously, I don't know about you, but if someone refuses to eat with me, I'm not going to take that kindly, right? I'm going to go, you clearly don't like me. You clearly think there's something wrong with me. There's something deficient with me. So imagine if, you know, most of the early church, they practiced, their worship was coming around the table. Well, imagine if half the church said, oh, we can't eat with you people. You're not going to have unity. How are you going to have fellowship in the spirit? It's not going to happen. And Paul makes it clear that through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are united. He says this, Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When his, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. And so for this reason, I think it's really concerning to see the leaders in Jerusalem accepting the believer's zealousness for the law without trying to teach the law doesn't make them superior. We see the Jewish believers are falling into that error that so many believers fall into. They're making minor things into major things and forgetting the major things that are of real importance. It's, a, it's incredible to me how Christians can fight with one another over things of such minor, insignificant detail. And we forget that, that we're all united by Christ. And I think the most dangerous thing is that the good news of Jesus, the message of God's grace to the nations, can be obscured by church tradition or, or minor, minor personal preferences. The importance of the salvation, the work of Christ on the cross gets lost in rituals and ceremony and tradition. And so I always kind of go, I, I don't ever want you know, tradition or ceremony or my personal preference or opinion to obscure the wonderful good news of God's grace, the message of salvation by faith alone. And I don't see that happening in this church, but it's just something I, I think all churches need to watch out for. We have this tendency to make minor issues into major issues. It's kind of always lurking in the background. It's just something to be aware of. What are, you know, especially our own opinions. We're going to get into this a little bit more in a, in a little bit, but, you know, my opinion, we tend to think that my opinions are right because they're my opinions. But it's really, really good to hold those things loosely and, and to make sure that they're not obscuring uh, fellowship in the spirit. Now, because the believers in Jerusalem are so zealous about the law, they find it really easy to believe the rumors about Paul. And they go around saying that Paul is teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses, to not circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. Now, if they had the proper perspective concerning their rituals and customs, they wouldn't find it so easy to get angered by these rumors. Even if these rumors were true, which I'm going to show you that they're not, but even if they were true, they'd say, okay, we like to follow the law. They like not to follow. That's fine. And they would have the proper perspective because Paul has already said it's, it's fine if you want to celebrate the Jewish law and custom and it's fine if you don't want to follow the Jewish law and custom. Do what is your conscience tells you to do. So if they had the proper perspective, they'd say, okay, we're going to keep following the, the custom and the law and, and you won't and, and that's fine. We'll fellowship together. 
Now, to be clear, Paul himself didn't find it necessary to be under the law. He says, when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But just because Paul didn't always follow Jewish law and he didn't teach the Gentiles to follow Jewish law does not mean he was teaching the Jews to abandon the law. The Jews could live free from the law if they chose to, as Paul did, but Paul never really taught Jewish people to to abandon it. But that's what's being said about Paul, that he's teaching the Jews to abandon everything. The evidence of this is against them. So consider this. Paul had his young protege, Timothy, circumcised. Why would, he have his, why would he have Timothy circumcised? It's because he knew that Timothy wouldn't be accepted by the Jewish people. So Paul said, okay, you're going to get circumcised, Timothy, because I want the Jewish people to hear the gospel. And Paul took a Jewish vow when he was in Corinth. You can read about that in Acts 18.18. 18. And it was Paul's custom to live like a Jew while he was preaching to the Jewish believers. Paul says, when I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. So Paul says, hey, when I'm with the people who live under the law, I live under the law. I don't teach them anything different. So he's certainly not teaching them to abandon it. But when people begin to spread rumors and spread lies and the truth gets obscured and there's zealousness for the Jewish law, you can imagine the believers are making assumptions about Paul. Because Paul's kind of a strange Jewish man, right? He's this former Pharisee who now ministers to Gentiles and he doesn't require the Gentiles to follow the Jewish law and he himself kind of moves in and out. Yeah, I sometimes live under the law, sometimes I don't. And I believe what we're seeing here is the destructive, the destructive power of assumptions. There's no basis for these accusations against Paul. It seems that these rumors are coming from assumptions, right? You can see it happening. A Jewish believer goes, well, I've heard that Paul guy doesn't consider himself to be under the law. He's probably out there teaching all the Jews in the synagogues they don't have to be under the law. They don't really know what Paul's doing, but they're assuming things. So here's a good lesson for us in the church. And this is actually really important. We can't allow assumptions to become truth. We should never act as if our assumptions are true without proof. If, if you think a person may have done something or said something, if you're suspicious of their, of their motives, if you have concerns about something that was said or done, you need to go directly to that person and find out if that assumption is true. Too often in, in church bodies, people assume things about decisions that were made or about you know, leadership things that happened, and, and they kind of treat their assumption as the truth. But it's just an assumption. They don't know that. And so you have to go right to that person and find out if what you're assuming is really true. And I would say the epitome of arrogance is to presume to know something you can't possibly know, to set yourself up as a mind reader, to go, I know why the pastor did that. It's because of this. And, you know, it's probably totally wrong. No no element of truth. And that actually can really quickly derail churches, is when when people start to make assumptions about why things are happening. And, and it tends to be human nature that we never assume the best about people, but we assume the worst about people. Have you ever noticed that? How often do you assume the best about someone's motives? I usually assume the worst. So there's the command to love one another. That's a command, right? And reckless assumptions like this, where we assume the worst about people or we assume to know someone's motives without actually finding the truth, it kind of destroys that ability to love. There's two things about love in 1 Corinthians 13 that I think give us guidelines on this. First, love does not rejoice in evil, but delights in truth. So that's pretty self-explanatory. Seek truth before you spread falsehoods. That's, that's self-explanatory. And the second one is this. Love always protects, and love does not dishonor others. 
And so if we're looking to not dishonor someone, if we're looking to protect someone, then it means before we believe an assumption made or before we believe a rumor or you know, maybe we're even thinking it ourselves, we need to go to that person and find out what the truth is. We need to honor one another. And it's dishonoring to someone to presume to know something about them that you can't possibly know. It's dishonoring to that person to assume the worst about them without going and talking to them first. That's a way of protecting another person's reputation and character. It's more dangerous to do this stuff than we realize. James puts it like this, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're only fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. And again, there's just such a, the, the tongue is like a fire, right, that can start many fires. And I think within the church body, and that's what you're seeing here in, in, in what's happening in the Jerusalem church, is that they're not honoring Paul. And there's these rumors floating around. And there's, there's a negative talk and it's, it's going to cause division. So here's what happens. The leaders in the Jerusalem church know that Paul is a divisive man right now. And it's going to affect the unity of the church there. So they come up with a plan for Paul. They want Paul to make a grand gesture to assure the Jewish believers that he's still a good Jewish man, that he still affirms Jewish customs. So here's the plan they come up with. They say this. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple, join them in the purification ceremony, pay for them to have their heads ritually shaved, then everyone will know that the rumors are false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. So Paul agreed to their request and went with them to the temple. They had already started the purification ritual, so he publicly announced the date when their vows would end and sacrifices would be offered for each of them. I just can't get over this plan of them. Like, not only does Paul have to submit to this, but also they're like, and also pay for these guys. Out of your own pocket, pay for these guys to have their heads ritually shaved. And as we read further in the text, you're going to see how dangerous these assumptions are. We're going to read to the end, and then we'll back up. But let's continue on. It says, Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple and roused the mob against him. They grabbed him, yelling, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere, tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple, defies this holy place by bringing in Gentiles. For earlier that day, they had seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they assumed that Paul had taken him to the temple. They assumed that Paul had taken him to the temple. This whole thing happens because they assume the worst about Paul. That's that guy who teaches the Jews to disobey the Jewish law. I bet you he brought his Gentile friends in here. I saw him talking to a Gentile. I bet you they're here. And you know what happens after this? The whole city riots. And Paul's about to be killed before the Roman soldiers intervene because they don't want a riot breaking out in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and all of this happens based on the faulty assumptions of those who assume the worst about Paul. And it has opportunity to occur because Paul humbles himself to the request of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. The title of the sermon today is Courageous Humility. And it comes from my study on this part of the passage. The humility that Paul has here to agree with this plan of the church leaders. That's incredible. Paul could have refused this. And some commentators, if you read some commentaries, they say Paul made a great mistake by agreeing to go along with this plan. First of all, he didn't have to. He doesn't have to submit himself to this. This is an unreasonable request. Uh, second of all, it could cause confusion amongst his Gentile converts. Like, hey, Paul, why are you, I thought we weren't under the law. Why are you putting yourself under the law? So there's some commentators that say, hey, we think Paul made a great mistake here. But I, I, I would disagree with them. I don't think Paul made a mistake. But I do want you to understand just how much Paul was sacrificing here. Paul doesn't have to do this. 
He could have said, no, guys, I don't, I don't need to do any of this. But what I think we see happening is that Paul's willing to humble himself if it would bring unity to the church. Paul's motives here appear. He wants unity in the fellowship of believers. This is, a, this is an act of courageous humility. We see Paul living out what he preaches as he agrees to do this. In Philippians, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so here we see Paul preserving the unity of the body, looking out for the interests of the Jerusalem church leaders. To, to make a church healthy, it often requires that some people need to humble themselves and, and some people need to, and you know, Leadership especially needs to humble themselves. It's pretty well documented that a lack of humility amongst members of a church will kill a church. Tom Rainier uh, wrote a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. He analyzed a whole bunch of churches that had shut their doors. And he came up with this formula. If the mindset of the church members is me first, it equals church death. And if the mindset is others first, it equals church life. And Paul's an example of others' first mentality. He agrees to go through this ritual. He agrees to pay for the other man out of his own pocket. And this whole proposal is actually insulting. It's almost negating all the amazing work that Paul's done amongst the Roman cities. And yet Paul doesn't say a word about it. He simply agrees. Whatever it takes to preserve the body of Christ. And we might say, well, shouldn't the leaders of the Jerusalem church also humble themselves? Yeah, they should have. They should have defended Paul. They shouldn't have, have said, you have to go and prove yourself Jewish enough. They should have done it, but they didn't. And so you could say, in this case, they were the weaker believers. And so Paul, a stronger brother in the faith, becomes an example of humility for them. He submits when he doesn't have to. That's what courageous humility looks like. That's why I call it courageous, because he doesn't have to do this. He submits when he doesn't have to. It can be painful to not defend yourself, to humble yourself before people who misunderstand you, but sometimes that's what humility looks like. Now I understand, and I don't want to go too far with this, because sometimes you need to put up boundaries, right? And you need to not allow yourself to be taken advantage of by people who just want to trample over you and coerce you into things, but that's actually not what's happening here. Paul's completely in control of the situation. He willingly chooses to submit and humble himself for the sake of others. Because you know how this plays out in the modern church is somebody says, absolutely not. I'm going to take my followers and we're going to start a church down the street. And we're going to do what we think is right. Paul could have done that. He has enough clout amongst all the Roman cities that he's traveled to. Paul could have said, you know what? You guys do your Jewish Jesus thing. Go ahead and do it. I'm going to go to the people who love me, who understand me, and I'm going to minister to them. He could have split the church right then and there by saying, you know what, guys, forget it. I'm out. But instead he says, okay, I'll submit myself to you. I'll humble myself to you. You misunderstand me. You allow rumors to float around about me. You demand that I go to the temple and do a ritual I don't have to do. You demand that I pay for these guys out of my own pocket. Okay, I'll do it. What we learn from Paul is that humility, like true humility, is not easy. Humility often involves sacrificing something of yourself. It involves sacrificing your opinions, your preferences for the good of others. It means putting others' interests ahead of your own. Sometimes humbling yourself means others get something when you don't get anything. And in the case of Paul, Paul gets arrested because he decides to humble himself. 
So when it comes to humility, really true courageous humility, it goes against everything in us to really lay ourselves down for the good of others. And then we have to trust what scripture says, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. It's not what is seen, but what is unseen. Because in the worldly way of doing things, oftentimes when you humble yourself, everyone goes, man, look at that, you've just made yourself a doormat. Everyone's walking all over you. You're not getting anything done. And so we have to trust that what is unseen is more important. The mindset, Paul says, that we need to have is the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. A life of humility is based on the cross of Jesus Christ, which tells us that Jesus could have chosen to do none of it, but decided to endure all of it for our sake. Paul gives us the example of courageous humility. He follows Jesus in this, showing us that we need to consider others' needs ahead of our own. And and walking in humility often means I lay down my pride, my ego, my desires, my wants for someone else's good. Don Sanukian says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's simply thinking of yourself less. When we think of ourselves and our role in the church, it's really important for us more and more to see ourselves as servants of one another. Humility means I don't demand my own way. It means I don't think my opinions are more important or more valid than someone else's. It means I'm willing to not get my way if it means others are built up. Courageous humility is the mindset that says, I'm here for you. I'm here to make sure my brothers and sisters thrive in this place. So I just want to close today with a few principles to practice humility. And these are things that I try and practice in the church. Number one, just because I think it doesn't mean it's true. Call that don't assume. Number two, my opinions and preferences are not more important than others. Don't be entitled. And number three, I'm here to serve and love others as they serve and love me. Church is not a product to be consumed but a family to participate in. These are three kind of key things that I try and practice when I do leadership decisions in the church and as I work with a team and as I work with a congregation, these are three things that I try and keep in my mind. Because I have opinions on how I'd like church to be. I could, you know, but just because they're my opinions doesn't make them right. And I need to go, what is best for the body? What is gonna serve you the best? You might think it's kind of funny to close out our entire Acts series on humility. We did love and we did humility. And I go, what? We started with talking about spiritual power and spiritual authority and walking in the fullness of the spirit. But Jesus shows us humility is the ultimate and love binds it all together. And if we don't understand humility and we don't understand love, then I don't want you walking in power. I don't want someone who walks in power who doesn't love me and who won't humble themselves. That's dangerous. And so that's why we, it's actually very appropriate to end our Acts series talking about courageous love and courageous humility. The ability to love someone, to love your enemy, and then to lay yourself down for them. And then to humble yourself before other people, to be the servant of others. As Jesus said, you're not going to be leaders like, like the worldly leaders. You're going to serve. Whoever wants to be great among you must, must become the greatest servant. And so as we walk in spiritual power, we walk in spiritual authority, the one thing we can never lose is we have to have the same mindset of Christ Jesus who humbled himself even to death on a cross.
as we come into the Advent series, I think that's going to become really prominent. The God who was over all things laid it aside to become a man for our sake. Love and humility. I'm going to invite Pastor Mike up to lead us in communion, and it'll just kind of remind us of, of all of this.